Greetings and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Miguel. Today is the 21st of July, 2020, and it is, well, for me, session 23. Session 23, making this episode 24, and for McGill, it says chapter 12, but, you know, we're on his second campaign that we're talking about in here. So, um, yeah, any any opening comments, opening gambits, McGill? Uh, I will say that uh, this is going to be sort of a, a moment for the players to catch their breath after... The flurry of activity in my last adventure, so it's it's going to be a bit of an exposition dump, low on action, but I think it'll be entertaining. Well, that should at least give give me some to talk about. I've the trouble with me and and this operation here is I've literally got I'm looking at it about four lines of notes on this session. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you didn't have like a heavy metal album to reverse engineer it. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think, uh, like, I, I know the album, I know the track, I just, uh, I think it was just a bit general, I guess, what, what I took from it, and, uh, I don't know, I guess it's just a fairly straightforward D&D encounter that I was running, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, um, yeah, so so I I don't have much to talk about in the way of my actual session. I'll I'll try and you know uh, talk you, you know branch off of, of whatever uh, I come up with for the session since uh, that's kind of the point of the show. But uh, well, I think it is worth saying too to all those DMs who might be listening, like allow yourself a break every once in a while not every adventure has to be like ultra complex and this extremely interwoven plot if you need to if everybody wants to play but you don't want to prep stuff like find yourself a pre-written module or just run the most basic dungeon crawl you can run a dungeon crawl with no prep time at all just find like the the dungeon master's guide and maybe a map online and some good loot and wing it wing it man the monster manual you know grab a few minotaur skeletons hell after listening to this podcast you should have everything you need there's something to be said for that that's fair um i guess do you want to start since you sure kinda have more to share sure so uh we finally gotten into the time travel portion of this campaign which i've been teasing for a long time and uh as i said last uh, episode it sort of occurred to me as i was recounting it that it must have been really interesting for the players uh because i had not told anybody in advance that it was going to be a time travel adventure at any point so the time travel aspect really caught everyone off guard but i had had it in my mind since the beginning and i've been telling you about it since the beginning so it's just, I don't know, I, I got that. I think there's an internet word for it, like sonder, like wonder, but with an S, sonder, um, which is the, the moment 
where you realize that everybody around you is living a life just as complex as your own and you sort of try to imagine what it would be like to see through their eyes. I had that moment last time. Um, so we're into time travel and the players got the lantern back. They swapped out the lantern 2 for the original lantern so that it was the lantern 2 that got destroyed and they made off with the lantern 1 uh, and they got all their stuff back. Uh, everything is where they left it. And so I started this adventure just giving them a moment to enjoy their their reward. They got everything back. Morwood was on the control deck, just having a hell of a time flying the lantern again. He loves it. Um, Abendroth went back to his lab and he was just so comforted to see all his stuff was there. Uh, Reese was there as well, helping him with whatever project he decided to have on the go. Uh, he was he fast tracked completion of the lightning rifle because he left the completed version in the past. So the the new the one that he has was incomplete and he had to finish it. Um, McGrath was back in the lounge of the ship wrestling with his pet tiger cub whiskers who he thought had been blown up as well uh lady anna went back to her quarters and like all of her pistols are laid out uh you know mounted on the wall where she left them uh everybody is just totally delighted to be back in the lantern as they fly away from london uh and they have a cloaking device on the lantern as well so invisible as they fly away I um, just wanted to go back to something. It's just like when you were talking about sort of seeing things from the player's eyes and specifically getting on the point that like, you know, the players didn't know that this was a time travel story. But when we went into this, I, I knew. Um, it's interesting because I think I had always... I mean, I guess you, you had made it explicit to me that the players did not know where things were headed with the time travel... And yet, like, the preview at the end of the previous game and everything, really, it's like I have always been approaching it mentally as the hook for this game was the time travel. Like, the pitch for this campaign was this time it's time travel. And it's funny to think of that being a mystery, like, that that being a secret from the players. I think... um like, I've definitely had reveals and stuff that I pulled on the players, but at the same time, often there is, like, a central hook that I'm pretty upfront with the players about, about what the game is going to be. And I guess, like, it was enough to just say, you know, it's it's uh, Minds of Metal and Wheels Part 2. But, um, yeah, like, like the, the example that I'm thinking of is... I ran a campaign that, at least for the first act of it, was uh, based on, like, Oregon Trail and was, like, about running a caravan over a long distance from settlement to settlement. And, you know, that was something I always got out up front to the players because it was, like, part of the pitch for the campaign. And uh, it's funny to think of, you know, building a campaign and, like, withholding that element that would have been such a strong pitch i guess yeah i mean it wasn't i don't i withheld that time travel was going to be like a big factor and it was going to make up 
like the last third of the campaign, I withheld a lot of the details there. As you said, like there was a bit of a hook where it was revealed at the end of the last campaign that somehow Sutter was alive and the players were seen with him. So I think they always had like an inkling, like maybe there's going to be time travel, but they didn't really know. And as Minds of Metal and Wheels Part 2 progressed, I think they started to kind of forget about that because like there was yeah, always that's this definitely a factor. Yeah, exactly. Because there was always this air of mystery, like someone's working against them. They're uncovering this hidden plot. There are clearly like weird things going on here, but they just didn't really know what. And I mean, to be fair, I, I kind of seeded the time travel moments in like under the guy or under the conceit of they're going to be like invisible. You know, they're 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 cloaked and they're just hiding right next to their past selves and they just don't realize it. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying. I can't remember if anybody like really clued in, but nobody was expecting it when suddenly, you know, Isaac turns up again uh out of nowhere in a time machine that nobody knew what was going to happen then. And then certainly last adventure that I talked about, that was when they started going like, Oh wait, all of these little mysterious holes. We're the ones who fill them in going back through time. And we can either go back in time and find out the answer to a question, or we go back in time and we're the answer to a problem we had. Um, so it really was interesting just to have all that fall back into place. And uh, Last Adventure really was just like, go here, go there, get, you know, basically it was it was the equivalent of someone like pulling up and being like, OK, no time to explain, get in the van. Um, so for this one, I slowed things down. They're enjoying themselves. They're just so happy to be back in their familiar surroundings. Quellen is back. Nathan Garrett is back. Whiskers the Tiger is back. Everybody's back. Everything's where it should be. And they're flying away. And uh, after giving them some time to settle back in, I have Isaac come on over the intercom and he goes, strap yourselves in. Time waits for no man. We're about to journey into the future past. Well, <laughs> he's, he's been time traveling so much at this point that he can't keep track of when they're coming from and how it relates to where they're going to. So he's very confused, but he goes, we're, we're traveling again. And he hits the, the time travel button, basically. And they, they zap, you know, through the, the timescape. Uh, your vision is suddenly filled with a brilliant flash of yellow light. It crackles across your brain. Your, the hair on your arms stand up as the temporal ether distortion field expands to encompass the ship. But then something goes wrong. And suddenly the ship like sputters out of uh, out of energy and they're just sort of floating out in outer space and they don't know where they are. Isaac starts cursing and he goes, I got to repair this. And Avondroth is like, OK, I'll help out something in the time machine, uh, the spatial manipulation modulator ruptured or something like that. And so they have to repair it. And with that, with that extra time, uh, that's when I take the opportunity to have Abendroth talked to Isaac and Isaac sort of explains some of the stuff about the space time device. Uh, it was invented by Dr. Forrester, an NPC from the last campaign. And uh, 
using the etherscope, he's able to take a four translate four-dimensional information into a three-dimensional image. And so Abendroth like puts on a heavy pair of goggles with like fur padding around the edges. And he looks through them and he sees like a glowing yellow strand of light that sort of stretches off into infinity. It's it basically kind of like VR goggles. Like he, you know, follows his head. He looks off one way and there's this strand of yellow light that leads off into infinity one way. And then he looks the other way and it stretches off into infinity in that direction as well. And then along the strand at various points are these long multicolored loops that like arc off into the dark space around it or reconnect. And uh, Isaac basically says, like, those arcs are the paths of time travelers such as ourselves. Each one has a distinct color signature, and ours is this yellow one. And so the player, and in explaining this and sort of explaining what's going on, how he says, like, we have to go back and we have to make sure all of these different factors line up so that we can stop the impending invasion of the German Martian Alliance and their fleet. And that invasion was just happening when they left. And uh, Isaac also explains, uh, I had given Steve, like Steve and I, before Steve re-entered the campaign, he and I had sat down and just gone over the science of it so that he could, it just, it's just more organic to have like the, the character explaining all this. It makes it feel like it is actually part of the story. And like he's been off having an adventure uh, even if, you know, Steve wasn't doing playing any D&D, he was just off on posting. Um, so he talks about how, like, yeah, we have to line things up so that we can stop this invasion, but we can't change the timeline too much uh, because, you know, that it just might screw up the space-time continuum. It's possible that it might make, like, time collapse in on itself and suddenly everything happens at once. And it's just like basically the end of everything. Or it could be that they create a branching timeline and like an alternate universe that is completely different. And we don't want that because what we want to do is actually stop this. So in going back through time, they have to like fix things so that everything still leads to that point. But there's still a way for them to overcome the invading army. And so the obvious sort of solution to come up with is, okay, we're going to try and do what we did to defeat Hudson Kane's army the first time. We're going to sabotage the automatons and like the ships uh, in a way so that, you know, so that there's a weakness. There's a weak point so that we can target that and it'll it'll start taking them out very easily. Um, and so the players go, okay, uh, first what we need is a way of like finding out more just about the German Martian operations. And I had initially thought like my plan was to start guiding them in the direction of going back to Alpha Station or going back to the base that they infiltrated uh, just off the coast of Alcatraz. But they start going, no, 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 no. We should go like way, way back and like take hostage someone who is close to Kane who might have it because they also know Kane is somehow involved. There was like a clockwork version of him working with Otto von Bismarck. They're like, we need someone who's close to Kane. We can go back and, and 
like kidnap them and get information out of them and have the upper hand that way. And maybe they'll know how we can like infiltrate the operation or something like that. And so the players were coming up with this plan and I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Let's go with that. And uh, so this was another point where I really started improvising. Does it often happen with you that when you talk about your campaigns, you talk very sort of matter of factly about like the order of events, but do you find that there are times where your players will suggest something and you're like, yeah, let's just go with that. And so you sort of wing it for a section or maybe even. Again, it, it kind of depends on because I, I have my game kind of divided into there's the operations and there's the downtime between the operations. Uh, in the downtime between the operations, it's much more, yeah, let's like like I'm ready for anything, and uh, you know I'm looking forward to them just giving like offers that I haven't expected or anything that we can just run with. But in the context of the operations, I think there's more of an expectation that I'm going to be providing them with a direction. See, that's neat. Uh, that's that's a really interesting difference between our two player groups. Do your players ever, I don't know, do they go like, can we do this? And you're like, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, let's do it. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just so eager to latch on to my players' ideas that I'm willing to be like, fuck it, throw away this part of the notes, let's go with that. I generally try to, like, if they pitch an idea, I try to go through with it, uh, particularly... Like my f ideally, I want them to be pitching to me how they want to approach the different operations, what time they want, like if they want to go by night or day, if they want to fly in, if they want to use the teleportation. Yeah. So, for example, when in the campaign that I'm running now, uh, it's pretty regular at this point that, you know, I'm actually actively asking for the offer from the players or like, you know, I'll give the offer of you have these following transportation options available to you. Where do you go and how do you get there? Um, you know, uh, and again, because it's the MPOC, they have the option to like just expedite everything by saying we use the tele teleporters and I have that option for them. But also, uh, like at this point in the campaign I'm running, the players have sort of like signature vehicles. So they're always happy to like, you know, if I ask them how they're getting somewhere, they're always like, well, can I use the motorbike or the Jeep or the aircraft? And like, you know, any opportunity for them to play with that. And then I get to take into account, it's like, I don't like list the pros and cons of each thing necessarily each time if they choose it, but each thing that they choose in my head, I know what difference that's going to make. Like, um, obviously the aircraft is going to be a drawback in terms of stealth. In fact, all the vehicles usually are, um, you know, so that may, you know, when it comes to like, oh, we're heading for like, uh, potentially hostile territory, they usually leave their vehicles behind because they know they're going to make a lot of noise in the process. But anyways, that's just like an example of like, at this point, I think it's part of like, in the early game, certainly in my first campaign uh, that I've been talking about, it's like, I'd say 
the players are like some of them were fairly experienced with role-playing games like everybody had played a role-playing game before but i think there was still a sense of general uh like i didn't want to leave them just kind of like directionless and i think that was part of what i've been saying for my own part which is like fifth edition was a new system i wasn't that familiar with it i was kind of easing my way into it but i think another part of that was like um they wanted you know they they wanted to see the narrative that i was offering in addition like it wasn't just a campaign where they wanted to do wherever whatever they wanted they wanted me to like set something up and then stage it so that they could approach it however they wanted i think that's the best way of putting it well, it's occurring to me that maybe my players are just shit disturbers. Because <laughs> uh, as as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about like, you know, the Mission Impossible movies. You've seen at least one of those, right? Yep. So at the beginning, I played when... the game on N64, had some pretty great music. Ooh, it's a deep cut. Um, at the beginning of every one of those movies, they send Ethan Hunt a message and it's like your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to blah, 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 blah. My players are the kinds of people who might be like, I don't accept it. See, this is <laughs> I I've, I was literally using that line from the beginning with the MPOC. And I think like I established I established pretty clearly in the first five sessions, like if your character doesn't choose to accept these missions, we should be playing a different campaign. And, like, you know, it was a new game of 5th edition. I totally would have taken that criticism, uh, potentially. Like, you know, in the past, I had run games where my starting offer was just, what do you guys want to play as? You know, that's how I did the sort of spinoff game with the two detectives. That's how I did my Space Vampirates game. And uh, with 5th edition, I think, like, we were just launching into something new, and I was like, well, here, let's try this. And uh, it just so happened to work out. I think also it's something that the players, and certainly my brother who was in the group and uh, later was like running a fifth edition game of his own, um, I think that... I don't know how often I'd say this happens, but I, I think... There's certainly, I am familiar with at least a few campaigns that are not nearly as structured as the MPOC ones that I do are. Um, and I think there's, like, like certainly on the part of, I think, my brother, um, that was, like, that difference between my game and other D&D games that were a bit looser and like you say the the characters are kind of shit disturbers and taking the story in all kinds of wild directions i think um certainly some players who have joined the mpoc games have said to me like that change of pace is really refreshing that there there's never a point where you're just where the mpoc agents are just in a city and they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing like you know, in some games, there's no, you're not supposed to have a sense of what you're supposed to be doing. And that's part of it. But I think with the MPOC games, like for some people, it's refreshing to have that level of guidance where it's like, well, here's the objectives. 
you can complete them how you like, but like this is what the mission is. Oh, certainly. Um, I'm also realizing I sent you, I guess we'll have to post this on the WordPress, but a little while ago I sent you like a, a D&D meme where it's it's all stills from uh, that show Narcos, but it's it's stills of Pablo Escobar like standing all alone, looking sort of lost in thought with nobody around him, kind of lonely. And the macro text is the DM when nobody picks up on 12 different story hooks. <laughs> So the thing I said in response to that was, well, at least they can't say I haven't been making offers. And it's that was like coming directly from a recent experience, which was I'd I'd been running this cyberpunk RPG on the side. um, And, you know, every session I would come with like tons of like, okay, they could take this job. These guys are up to this thing. These things are happening in this area. And, like, I'd have all these offers, and then they just, like, pursue their own whatever nonsense. And... See, that, that is, that's like, exactly what I'm talking about. That right there is, but, like... But that's totally fine, because, you know, I was just like, well, okay, let's get let's go pursue your nonsense. I mean... I take it you're noticing that I'm I've got all these offers on display and like I mentioned at one point like uh, I think at one point uh they were mentioning like yeah we man we haven't uh like been in a lot of combats or anything and it's like well it's not like I haven't been giving you a plot hook like every 2 minutes to mull over and there it's like oh yeah like you've been actively giving us the plot hooks but we've been actively turning our noses up at them but like when when we want one we'll 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 take it all right yeah like that's that's sort of what i'm talking about it happens a lot with my players um that said in this particular instance it's not quite that uh this was a case of them just having an idea that i really liked uh, that i thought was even sort of better than my initial idea um and I was just like, okay, yeah, let's go with that. That's even more exciting. And they were like, you know what we should do is we should go like way back in time and kidnap Cogliostro because he is an automaton. We can hack his brain and find out everything about Kane's operations and stuff, get some real inside scoop, and then we can use him to like, we can send him in to infiltrate Kane's operations, and he won't be suspected because he's already like something in their system. They might not even know that he died on the lantern when Lady Anna shot him at the end of the last campaign. And I was like, okay, let's do that. Let's go back and kidnap uh, the big bad, NP- the Darth Vader of the previous campaign. And uh, this wound up tying really well into. The- I just got to say that when when you were talking about Cogliostro in the talking about the previous campaign, I had this um, suggestion that maybe Cogliostro had like a tragic backstory like uh, Johann Strauss, the other guy from uh, yeah. Hellboy. And like this like this offer would have made me jump at that. Like I would have been like, Oh, well you're going to go back in time to try and meet Cogliostro and you're going to find like the tragic hero that Cogliostro once was. This would be my opportunity to do like a proper Darth Vader prequel. (laughs) Well, you're going to be really happy because it, it wound up in a way being even more tragic than that. Um, 
I will explain sort of how they go back, but I'll also say that ultimately what happens is it's not that Cogliostro was a hero prior to when the players encountered him. It's that they're going to go back and they're going to hack his brain and like make him an ally. And then they're going to have to reset him to put him back in the timeline and eventually kill him. Oh, no. Which is totally, and it never would have happened had they not been like, ooh, I have an idea. And I'm like, this is perfect. Let's do it. And I, my mind immediately went to, okay, this is how I'm going to save Sutter as well. Because I always had some sort of idea, like vague ideas about how the players would end up going back in time and preventing Sutter's death. But this is perfect. They're going to... Like, go back in time, and before Cogliostro kills Sutter, kidnap Cogliostro out of the timeline, and then when they put him back, they can find a way to make it so that he doesn't actually kill Sutter. It only seems like he did. Was uh, a fake triangular blade in the heart. Maybe so. Yeah, maybe it's a retractable blade. I think they wound up going with that. But there's actually there's another sort of plot device that's going to come into play that also factors into I would just like if I was in the group, I would have if I was in the group, I would have been very actively pitching like, well, it would I remember from my note here. It was a triangular blade in the heart. Like, just, like, hear the paper, sh paper shuffling of me, like, going back, like, to three notebooks to the beginning of the first campaign. Man, first I wish session. my players had taken such detailed notes. It's funny, it wasn't until, like, gosh, it was, like, five years into, five or six years into DMing for this particular player group. That was when they were like, you know what? I should be taking much more detailed notes. And they eventually started coming with their own notebooks and like really noting down like all the NPCs they ran into and and all that stuff. But uh, around the time of Minds and Metal Wheels Part 2, like maybe they'd note down a few things, but they weren't actively taking notes. So I don't remember anybody being like, OK, hang on. What do we remember about this situation? They did, however, remember sort of the setup the, they knew where Cogliostro was definitely going to be, and that was hiding in Sutter's apartment before the players went to meet Sutter. Because when they met Sutter, he was just like just on his last breath. So Cogliostro was there before that point in the timeline. And they were like, OK, so we're going to go back there. And uh, they fixed the time device and they... You know, zip back to the because Abendroth has taken up residence, they know exactly where to go uh, and they hover outside the uh, the apartment cloaked with their invisibility cloak on the on the lantern and they can see the uh, the sort of clockwork ninja squad led by Cogliostro uh, repelling off the roof down the side of the building to get into the uh, to get into Sutter's apartment and Sutter is there with his like back to the big window that's behind his desk just ready to be killed of course and so uh they throw open the side door on the lantern Abendroth takes his lightning gun and zaps Cogliostro with like a low-level jolt all the automatons are sort of stunned by this Cogliostro falls off the side of the building and they just sort of scoop him up with the lantern and then warp right out of there 
and they war and that was where I where I ended it is they warped out of out of there off into the time stream they got their prize on to the next thing so it was it was some exposition dump a little skill challenge repairing the time device and then the players concocted this like crazy harebrained scheme that I love to go way back to the beginning of the campaign, the very first campaign, and kidnap a, a pretty cool NPC. It was fun. That was yeah, it was a it was a really good one. That one. That's a quality uh, quality thing way for it to turn out. And a a total delight and surprise to me as well because I hadn't quite planned that. I thought we were going to go to Alpha Station and the the base outside Alcatraz, and eventually they do go to those two places. But uh, this little detour, it was it was really fun. Just to like let's see how far back we can actually go. I would have definitely revealed that like Cogliostro used to be a dude, and then he got like imprisoned in this form by Kane or like betrayed by Kane and turned into this thing and then he's like yes let my transformation mean something and they, and they <laughs> like you know give him a chance there was oh, also man. actually I remember there was a moment where the party had to talk Lady Anna down from just going and killing Peck and Paw where he was standing outside the door uh, that's, to that's Sutter's apartment thing. I was like how did they resist just like trying to drive pecking pond to a thousand humiliating slapstick scenarios while they were around. <laughs> now you can't alter the time stream too much. Put a, I put a banana peel on the stairs right under. You put a rake just outside his front door. I, what was pecking paw wearing that day? I'm going to get the same clothes and I'm going to show <laughs> <laughs> man so many to go dumb, find out you could, you where he sleeps whole, like, fill his shoes with itching powder you could you could have a whole like montage just like side sequence that's just like sort of a groundhog day slash hot dog hot tub time machine kind of series of like the players just fucking around with the time machine but like not doing anything so disruptive that would change the timeline and always just changing back after they did it. Well, here's a callback to a previous episode. It would actually have been pretty funny if Minds of Metal and Wheels 2 ended with the Jay and Silent Bob strike back montage where they use the time machine to go back to every person who ever wronged them and just make like a dire inconvenience befall that person. You know, some somebody that they hate steps out of a, a tavern and then like falls through a, into a pit that they've dug for him or something like that. Something oddly similar like like that is that idea is fairly similar to me from something that happens at the end of this very campaign i've been telling the story of but we'll get to it i don't want to spoil it um okay so i guess we're getting on to mine now operation line one of four <laughs> what's that i said yes on to line one of four yeah exactly Operation Quantum Frost. Well, technically, that's line one of five right there because uh, it's the little title line, you know, it's just the title by itself. Okay. 
Now, uh, I know pretty well what happened in this one. I know basically what the tactical and narrative context for it was. Um, basically, you know, so, so just jumping back to last time, uh, the players had been deployed last time to an oasis that was right on the border. It was basically sort of the three-way border between the wastelands, the jungle, and the deathlands. Again, you can uh, view this oasis uh, specifically on the map featured in the first post on our uh, supplemental materials uh, WordPress, campairncampaign.wordpress.com. Anyways... If you're looking at that map, or you're not, doesn't matter. Point is, as I had set up last time, the idea is that now the agents are going to be, the players are going to be frontier operatives. They're going to be going where no MPOC agent has gone before. In this case, they're being sent behind, beyond the borders of the Deathlands to go behind enemy lines and, like, really get into where the bad guys are in control. And so starting that was just sort of not really even stepping beyond the border, but just getting to this oasis right on the border where um, a Nightside Eclipse leader known as Skits Mentu of the Mentu dynasty uh, had uh, basically taken over. He was using uh, flame skulls, as I mentioned. He had ghostly powers. It was basically, you know, he was expanding out of the Deathlands borders with his uh, undead influence. But with him defeated, uh, the players now knew that like their main competition going into this first like sort of uh, outskirts of the Deathlands would be this Mentu dynasty, the sort of undead nobility in the area. But to get there, um, it was decided... Basically, this was more like an MPOC planning thing than a, a player planning thing um you know if the players were just to like it, it's that typical thing of like one does not simply walk into mordor like you know if it was as simple as just sending agents to walk over the border into the deathlands they would have sent scouts there before but obviously that's too dangerous um the deathlands is like too hostile a territory too firmly in the grip of the nightside eclipse and so they can't just like deploy the players there they have to find a way of sneaking them in so to this end i provided them with a means of ingress in the form of an basically an underdark passage it's really, it was just like a subterranean tunnel, but, you know, with that good Dungeons & Dragons Underdark flavoring, it wasn't actually, like, you know, a journey into the the Underdark or anything, but it was, this was an operation that let me explore just a kind of a classic Dungeons & Dragons trope, which is, you know, uh, going into a tunnel under the ground and dealing with some Dark Elves. Um, the other thing that I was setting up here was that, uh, you know, I've sort of marked this on the map of Drail, uh, with some, a few little keys in the legend, but basically if you look at the map of Drail, much like the Forgotten Realms or other Dungeons and Dragons, uh, settings, there's effectively like, a a, a mirror world beneath 
the ground in the form of the Underdark. Like, beneath the surface empires of Drail, there are also the drow houses, which are scattered throughout the Underdark of Drail. And as part of that, I established that the drow under the Deathlands had, uh, of course, then been like everybody in the deathlands basically even if you're in the underdark below the deathlands you are within the purview of the nightside eclipse and so the drow beneath the deathlands are like nightside eclipse allied drow um of house Aishir, which is a name that i actually ended up using for uh much more good characters in uh the adventures we released with the uh, goblin ink press Anyways, um, so the situation was basically that the players were going to use this tunnel to get into the, like, to effectively make their way into the Deathlands more or less undetected. But, of course, they, in order to get through, they wouldn't necessarily be undetected because they would get past, they would need to get past, uh, Drow who in turn were loyal to the Nightside Eclipse and were guarding the passage. Um, so this is where we basically get to my uh, four lines of notes. Um, at this point, the players were like decently high level. It's also worth mentioning that like this is uh, maybe Act four of six for this campaign or something like we're starting to get into the latter half of the campaign at least and so um the players are kind of higher level now and so they're dealing with like this encounter it was just one encounter that i had planned for this that where they were going through the passage it was going to be very much them measuring their ability to sneak against their ability to realize that they are heading into the vicinity of like a drow uh underground ambush and well there, there's something specific about this session but I'll, I'll get to it in a minute so <coughs> point being uh they were sneaking through the passage and there was an ambush up ahead that consisted of eight uh drow elite warriors which are like pretty heavy duty like i mean it's in the name elite warriors like they're not run-of-the-mill uh goons they are like serious dudes that you'll have to fight at like a higher level and they're serious business and i also included just as their leader um a druid that i named castor and really all I wanted to do there was like I liked I liked the idea of the underdark druid. It's just like a cool concept to me. I think like the idea of like a sort of drow uh underdark druid whose like powers of nature are more based on like uh fungo fungoids and things like that. Um something about that just like kind of uh is attractive to me and so like when i was looking for you know i was kind of setting it up like a standard kind of war game infantry squad where it's like okay the encounter is going to consist of eight elite warriors and then like a leader unit which will be a caster 
and it'll be na- he'll name be named Caster, and uh, he'll be a druid. So, um, beyond that, like in terms of notes, I have like some treasure that was in the area. I had a an old masterpiece painting worth 2500 gold a gold music box worth 2500 gold um i've got a note here the tunnel leads beyond the deathlands border that's the whole point uh there was also 600 gold that they like got off the elite warriors i guess which like it makes sense elite drow warriors serve on the border of the deathlands would have like a good stash of treasure you could get after uh defeating them in the encounter it's rare that i've ever run an adventure in in the underdark oh that's interesting to me that's always it's always kind of uh an appealing notion to me i guess i should say i used to make this joke um it was like around the time that i was like around the times that i'm talking about like when i was running that uh, when I ran that little detective spin-off game with my friends and stuff, um, I I think I was asking them what kind of game they wanted to play, and like I kept sort of, uh, you know, opening up the question, but then saying, you know, we could always play my award-winning module, Trapped in the Underdark Forever which is not it doesn't exist i never won an award for a module i just kept making up that i had written an award-winning dungeons and dragons module called trapped in the underdark forever and it was just like (laughs) a miserable campaign where you are literally trapped in the underdark forever um so when are you actually gonna write that goblin ink press right i mean yeah it's it's tricky uh funny enough is that like then the third major adventure they released for 5e was uh out of the abyss which takes place in the underdark and uh you know i then sort of i was talking about this idea with my friends the idea of the trapped in the underdark forever and they said yeah but it's more it's 5e so it's more like trapped in the underdark for a couple of minutes because <laughs> uh <laughs> you might not last long enough to see forever is the point um i guess it's in- so it is interesting to me that you haven't run anything under dark because it's one of the sort of Dungeons and Dragons tropes that's like I I really enjoy but um there's a specific point that this session brings up for me is that I think I went into it with this idea that the ambush was going to be really tough for the players and I thought part of this was going to be uh, drow sleeping poison. Basically, do you know drow sleeping poison? No, you know, I don't think I do. Oh, okay. So it's a, it's like basically on all their monster profiles, it's a super common part of uh, drow as monsters in Dungeons and Dragons, but it's also, um, it's like a, it's like a plot device that, many not just like out of the abyss out of the abyss does rely on it but tons of other adventures league modules involving drow i've read 
involve drow sleeping poison as a plot device or in one way or another it's just like statistically in 5e it is a poison that um it poisons like you're saving against poison but if you fail the save by five or more i think you fall unconscious and it's basically like it's a tranquilizer like the poison effect is drowsiness and then like the extreme effect if you really fail your save is you fall asleep um the like i i th i have it written down here like it seems the drow poison for the elite warriors is dc 13 constitution uh lasts for one hour you can also use your action like it's like one of those um sleeping effects one of those sleep effects in 5e where you can use your action to like shake the person awake or if they take damage they wake up but otherwise um if they fall asleep it lasts for one hour and when i say that it's used as a plot device all over the place is because like it's constantly used to explain how players have been captured and ended up places uh in out of the abyss your players all start in the hands of drow in the underdark like in a prison and it's like oh well you got ambushed you got sleeping poisoned you woke up you were here and um it's also it's pretty good because it's also a way of rendering like you can have a combat that really frightens the players if they run into a drow raiding party and the drow are not even killing them they are just taking them alive um even if the players do not realize that that's what's happening uh it can be very effective because they're like oh my god we're we've been surrounded by a drow ambush and uh like they don't know that the the penalty is not going to be death necessarily so it's it's a useful thing in terms of like as a narrative device i would say i was gonna it's say like that is premium narrative device but i don't know seems kind of kind of op in some ways well you might think that but then i ran this session and i didn't think that so much because um I thought this whole ambush, the real challenge of it, like the primary challenge of it was going to be there's eight drow elite warriors and they've all got sleeping poison. So the players are going to be like fighting a tough fight and there's a chance that the like that the enemies are going to be weakening them as they fight or d disabling them even. Except and I'm pretty sure this is how I I ended it because like I remember after this session being like kind of frustrated just being like you know uh it did not go at all to my expectations and I think what I walked away from it was was like man who even who even cares about poison I think the problem was it was maybe that it was at this certain level of Dungeons and Dragons where you know the saves were so high and the ability to resist or be even be immune to poison was so common that sleeping poison actually didn't make much of a difference like here, here's the thing is we had a dwarven paladin and dwarves inherently get like poison resistance and advantage against poisons i think 
I might be wrong about that. I might be misspeaking, but it's something like that. And then like the Paladin also had like these excellent, you know, uh, things for avoiding poison. Um, similarly, we have like, we have two spell casters basically. And I think it may have also been something about, it might be that like, it was so easy for them to get advantage on the check against poison that even if their constitution wasn't spectacular, the poison just like wasn't having an effect at all. And so like, I sort of finished the session being like, well, I thought that this was going to be a crazy drow fight with drow poison. And really like, like, and I made a note specifically of the drow poison. So I wouldn't forget about it. And really I, I finished feeling like it barely mattered that the drow poison was there. (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know that sounds like that sounds like the kind of gripe i'd end up having actually just one of those things where it's like after a certain point what the hell is the point of poison anyway my players just keep saving i will also say like if you look at poison in terms of like as resistance and an immunity so many monsters have resistance or immunity to poison so that it's kind of like it's kind of a double-edged sword. You've got you on the one hand, you've got monsters using poison, and you know, unless the players are low level or specifically vulnerable to it in some way, uh, it doesn't seem to make a difference. And then you've got the option for players to coat their weapons in poison and stuff. But like every devil, undead, you know, whatever is going to have immunity or resistance poison. And it's just like, oh, what's the point? Um, but, you know, it's always there there for humanoids and low-level players. So that's something. Yeah, that's, you know what that is? That's the kind of thing you put in, like, uh, uh, an adventure with a challenge rating, like, maximum five, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, and I'd argue that, like, you can use the the narrative device of the drow poison beyond that maybe up to level 10 but like you know i i think it also this is just a again like it's a good response and illustration regarding what you said when i initially pitched it is like oh it seems op it's like eh, not necessarily it's it's good when it's conceivable that a player could like you know get surprised and knocked out with tranquilizer darts but you know once the characters are like super badasses um you're gonna have a hard time convincing the players that their super badass hero is gonna get taken down by a tranquilizer dart under any circumstances uh beyond that um i mean i guess i also just have a note here that I had added one of the poisons from the Dungeon Master's Guide to the, like, list of poisons that the MPOC agents could buy uh, from the apothecary Wenton, who uh, was selling potions and poisons for the agency. And uh, I that's actually something that, like, um, on this one page of notes I can see in the next few operations is something I expand on where it's like, I got access to the list of poisons in the dungeon master's guide. And I think 
the way I wanted to approach it and the way I approached it was, um, you know, each poison has sort of like a, an interesting background to it. Like drow sleeping poison is specifically has to be brewed in the underdark. It can't, you know, uh, it has to not be contaminated by sunlight, blah, blah, blah. Uh, similarly, you have other poisons like uh, carrion crawler mus- mucus or purple worm venom. And I like the idea of Wenton having the recipes for these poisons and basically posting on sort of like a, a bulletin board outside the laboratory for the MPOC agents. Like, hey, if you find uh, or if you run into your in your operations, uh, drow, purple worms, uh, carrion crawlers, things like this, basically sources of these poisons uh there was like a bounty on those uh resources to give to wenton and he could make uh poison out of them so it was something like if they ever fought a carrion crawler they could potentially cut out its poison gland after killing it and then bring that to wenton and then they'd be able to uh buy paralyzing poison for their weapons but as we just talked about might not have been that useful at this level it's always good to have the option, though. It's certainly cool flavor for the the agency. It makes me think of like when you play a game like I don't know, um, Pillars of Eternity or something like that. One of the Baldur's Gate, even where you like get really high level and then you realize that there were a couple of side missions that you forgot about when you were like level two, or they were too hard when you were level two, and you're like, oh, I'll go back and take care of those. And you breeze through them really easily, and then at the end you get, like, a weapon that's just completely worthless to you, and you're like, if I was, like, level two, this would have been amazing. (laughs) But now it's just junk. It's funny because in the campaign I'm running now, um, I do a lot of stuff where I run basically NPC-based side quests throughout the game uh, whenever players are on operations and stuff. And oftentimes the rewards for those side quests will be like quite minor. And sometimes, you know, the players already have the item that is the reward for that quest. Or like like if it's something like um, a silencer for a pistol or something like that. Or, uh, you know, they'll get a, an item and it's like good, but they just, it's just not their thing. And they just end up putting it in the armory. Uh, similar to we mentioned in the past the uh, plus three astral pike a great weapon nobody really used it i'm not sure why i guess because nobody was really a pikeman or considered them the pike type uh but that said um i like also having the narrative element in in the campaign i'm running now it's like yeah not every npc is gonna have a reward for the quest they give you that's like the best new thing in your inventory. Sometimes they're just going to give you what's the best thing they have. And that's going to be a gun that you could have bought like three levels ago. (laughs) Yeah, I've been there. (laughs) Bombs are always appreciated. I find though, you can always give a grenade as a quest item. And because it's consumable, they're like, all right, save this for a rainy day. I should really do that more often. I never think to give away explosives, but I know I've I definitely have talked about how my players just like accumulate potions and it's all it's that 
potions, scrolls. Exactly. Bombs. It's that thing yeah. like in Skyrim where you're weird. like, don't want to use it yet. Maybe there will be an even better opportunity. <laughs> but then it's like when they use it, it's like, how the hell was I supposed to keep track of like when you had it and when you didn't? Like, it's like, uh, I hope I hope you're keeping track of that. Players, do your DM a favor. Keep track of your potions and scrolls. Yeah, well, I, I I think I've mentioned it on the pod before, but my brother did a thing where every uh, magic item that a player got, he physically gave them a cue card with that magic item and the information on it. And the rule was, like, if they lost the cue card, they lost the item. See, I could still see my players just accumulating, like, items. a whole deck of cards. <laughs> well, he said uh, they still lost cards, so... <laughs> Anyway, on to the tavern. Oh, is it that time already? I think so. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to know about Operation Quantum Frost? No, that's all right. And in fact, I'm really excited because I found a good one for the tavern this time. I think we uh, stretched out the time pretty good. We managed to get like about an hour out of this. So yeah, we can talk about nothing forever. Gravy. <laughs> Dungeons gravy. Should I go first? Dungeons and gravy. Ah, uh, yeah, you go ahead. Gungeons and gravy? Biscuits and gravy. Huh? Um, so I'm pulling, I'm going back to Rifts. Our old buddies, Palladium Books. I almost went to Rifts today. Oh, there's such, it's just, there's so many source books for Rifts. That's what makes it so much fun to dive into. And, like, I still vividly remember an age where I thought all this stuff was really cool, but now a lot of it is hilarious. Um, so I'm pulling from Rift's World Book 2, Atlantis. And I want to talk about the occupational character class, the OCC, the Tattooed Man. Do you know these guys? No, but... You know, I know a weird Atlantean OCC that, like, is maybe a tattooed man. So I don't know. Hit me with it. The T-Monster Man, maybe? <laughs> um, here, I'll read a bit of the description of the tattooed man. Um, tattooed men, a.k.a. T-Men, are the recipients of many magical tattoos. The typical tattooed man was captured by the Splugorth slavers, taken from their families, forcibly given magic tattoos, trained in the use of the tattoos, subject to indoctrination in order to condition them for their new life. Wait, is it Splugorth? I thought it was Splurgoth. That's Splugorth. S-P-L-U-G-O-R-T-H. Splugorth. I've been calling the. I've been calling them. I've been calling them Splurgoth. I've been making an idiot of myself. Ah, that's okay. I only ever use stuff from riffs in my own, like, sort of ripped-off setting, so. I like Splurgoth better. Splurgoth is best, but th it's Splugorth. Anyway, these guys are enslaved warriors, basically. Um, in most cases, the magic tattoos were not acquired by choice and are seen as a curse which brands that person as a freak or monster regardless of the powers the magic may bring. So... That's the, the character class associated with this. And the idea is that they are covered in magic tattoos and the tattoos 
you they're like they're like scrolls or spells from a spell book basically you activate the tattoo and it has a spell associated with it and it's kind of it's not a bad idea it's kind of cool i'm pretty sure i've seen it in at least one movie where the guys the guys tattoos can come to life but uh in this in, case uh, though in Planescape yeah? torment you buy tattoos for new stuff there you go. Like, it's not a and, bad uh, idea in theory. But... I have a friend who's going to be running a, a high-level game in the future where he plans to have, like, you know, end-game-level uh, buffs and stuff, things that you get as tattoos in the abyss. Abyssal tattoos to give you new powers when you're already high-level. It's not a bad idea. The reason I want to read these, though, is because in typical Rift's palladium fashion the tattoos they describe these sound like just the most ridiculous like biker tattoo generic tattoo nonsense like as i read off what these tattoos look like i want you to imagine a guy with all of these tattoos because it's hilarious um let's see here uh, a chain encircling a skull. You you get a psionic save. It gives you a plus three to save versus psionic attacks. Uh, an eye with a dagger in it. Victims are blinded for one melee per level of the T-man's experience. The effect is instant. Um, an eye with tears. Empathy equal to the psionic power and can perform one empathic transmission. A heart pierced by a wooden stake. The character is impervious to the bite and mind control powers of vampires. A heart with big wings. 30 minutes of flight per level of experience until cancelled by the user of the tattoo. A phoenix rising from the flames. <laughs> Use the power to superheal. Will restore up to 50 hit points and 50 SDC points or 100 MDC points if the character being healed is a mega damage creature. Rose and thorny stem drink, uh, dripping blood. One minute of heal per level of experience. A dolphin. 30 minutes of swim spell per level of experience. Dolphin. Yeah, exactly. So this guy's Just got a, a tad. He's got a, 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 a skull with a chain. Uh, a chain around it. He's got an eye with a dagger in it. Uh, he has a heart with a stake in it, and then another heart with wings, and then on his back, like Ben Affleck, a phoenix, <laughs> and then he's got a rose and a rose with a thorny stem. <laughs> I have a critical question about this. Okay. Do these tattoos have to be good? I I don't think they Can do I at play all. A tattoo man, that's just like a like. A pale guy that's just covered in... He just looks like a flash art page of, like, poke and stick tattoos. Like, just like a <laughs> just bunch like, of little... Just, like, really bad little... stick and poke tattoos. Yeah. Well, I gotta tell you, like, I, I, I'll have to put the, the screenshot of the tattooed man image uh, on our WordPress. He doesn't look like he's covered in stick and poke tattoos, but he kind of looks like... You know, like a kid with a lot of temporary tattoos on where they're oh, not I really that. like. That's also great. I love it. They're they're not cohesive. Or he looks like one of those people. You've no doubt met some people like this who like get three tattoos on their arm and then decide to try to make it into a sleeve or something. 
<laughs> and you can really tell which tattoos came before the rest of it. Same kind of thing. Now I'm just like imagining what powers like great tattoos would give you. Like, so in Beavis and Butthead, Beavis and Butthead meet an escaped convict uh, who teaches them how to do like prison tattoos. And he has a tattoo on his forehead that says killer. And they think that his, that's his name. His name's Kyler. And uh, so they ask Kyler to give him, give them tattoos. Cause that'd be really cool. Huh? And uh, he asks what they want a tattoo of. And they both sort of like trip over themselves to say that they want a tattoo of a butt on their butt. <laughs> and then they both get <laughs> tattoos of butts on their butts. And like, Man, that would, like, you could associate that with, like, one of the dumb uh, ludicrous magic spells about farting or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. The double butt I really like that. this idea of, like, a, a tattooed man, OCC, with, like, bad stick-and-poke tattoos all over him. I, I, I do gotta say, actually, looking at the art that you just showed me, like... This answers my question. No, they do not have to look good. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely this guy don't. Literally does look like he's stuck a temporary tattoo everywhere that he could. <laughs> so that's oh the tattoo. There are a lot like weapon dripping blood, weapon two weapons crossed, a weapon covered in flames with a coiled snake, a flaming shield. You can get a bunch of different animals, a baboon, a badger or a wolverine. Uh, leopards, horses, monkeys. Um, so there are a lot of tattoos to choose from in Rift's World's Book 2, but uh, I've always thought that the tattooed man looks pretty hilarious. <laughs> My tattooed man just has 20 tattoos of Pickle Rick smoking a blunt. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Tattoos of meme, <laughs> meme lord tattoo man <laughs> okay all right what's yours gotta, what's yours mine is uh well you know i was thinking about you know every once in a while we could uh bring in you know sometimes we bring in magical items sometimes we bring in classes and stuff this time i thought i'd bring in an npc and it's an NPC that you probably don't see very often. It's an NPC that you could probably fit into any modern setting or, you know, uh, setting where it's appropriate. I don't think it would fit into a fantasy, although I'd like to see you reskin this for fantasy, and that would be great. This is an NPC from the Vampire Requiem Chronicler's Guide for World of Darkness. The Telecom Tech. A quote, I'm sorry about the noise on your line. We've had a number of reports of significant short circuits on lines in your area, and we're checking the capacitance ratings of each terminal individually. You may hear some transmission noise when using the phone over the next few days. Don't worry about it. It's normal. Background. The modern world depends upon telephone communications in order to work, and yet few really understand the deep workings of the phone system. Once the line gets beyond their house or office, few people understand about issues like how switching stations and frames relate, and what a central office does, much less the inner workings of a DMS, a massive cir circuit switching data system that governs the service features of trunking systems and line presence. 
This deep and arcane world is the domain of the telecom worker, the modern wizard who makes the magic of phones work by playing the 125-year-old phone systems to do their workers' will. Telecom workers come in many varieties, from the tech who climbs the poles and lays ground wires, to the repair operator who takes complaints, to the IP analyst who invents new ways for us to stay in constant communication. And all of them know how to make a phone into either a most useful tool or a most potent trap. Description. Telecom workers come in all shapes and sizes. Techs tend to be blue-collar types, wearing workmen's clothes and uniforms, and carrying tool belts and harnesses to let them climb phone poles and do other work on the lines. Operators dress like any office worker and have the general attitude of low-level office employees everywhere. Analysts and executives work just like management everywhere and dress sharply and work aggressively in order to further their careers. Hints. Telecom workers are trained to be polite and professional when dealing with the public, to instill trust in the system to the masses, and to let people know only enough to understand the basics of why there is a problem without causing them to panic. As a result, most tend to keep an even, professional front, even when furious. This applies especially to repair clerks and operators who daily take some kind of verbal abuse known to some of the worst verbal abuse known to humankind. And often use techno jargon in order to confuse and make it seem like they have given a complete answer when they really have not. While player characters may come face to face with techs in the field, many operators will be only disembodied voices on their phone line. So developing a strong speaking pattern for a recurring storyteller character is very important. Antagonists. An angry and determined telecom worker can cause more pain than the average person would consider possible. By manipulating the system, someone even at the lower levels of an organization can tap phones, trace calls, set up mailing services that will constantly block and flood phone lines so that no real calls can get through, and shut down service. And that's just the beginning. Techs with more knowledge can arrange to have all of the vampire's calls forwarded to their worst enemy, or set their phone up so it calls 911 anytime they use it, automatically summoning the police to wherever the vampire is. The worst thing is that they can do almost all of these things without ever coming within miles of the vampire's haven, working securely from a corporate office behind layers of corporate security. Allies. Just as an angry telecom worker can be a curse from God, an allied worker can be a blessing from heaven. They can, if sufficiently motivated, do unto the vampire's enemies all the things listed above. Telecom workers can also make sure the vampire's line goes untapped, get her access to unlisted and blocked numbers, free phone service with all the features, and so on and so forth. And their abilities include Phone Wizard. Telecom workers know how to do things with phones that would make the average person blanch, from tapping lines to cutting off service to detecting when someone has tampered with a phone or phone line. Technobabble. Using a combination of technical jargon, evasion, and good old-fashioned lying, many telecom workers are very skilled at not telling their customers exactly what is going on while making the customer believe they know exactly what is what. There you go. An NPC that you probably haven't run into before. A telecom worker. So, uh, the fantasy version of that. You ever read the comic Rat Queens? I have read Rat Queens, but I'm not sure if I know the reference. Well, in Rat Queens, the characters have uh, these gems that are just like cell phones, where they get calls on these gemstones and they use them like phones. You totally have a telecom worker. Sending crystals. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, a telecom worker then would be like somebody who knows, like like an artificer who specializes in those stones 
and can like make you like a jamming one or like make you a secure one that's a big thing in uh, cyberpunk is you always got to have your burner calm and your secure calm and not do one thing on the other you know true although it sounds from that npc like the more likely scenario is they go to him to try and get a, a burner stone or something like that and he's like well I mean, it's going to take two or three weeks to get the magical confabulator component. And these different components that you need to cast the spell, they're really rare. And it's going to take another month or so before I can get <laughs> just like. But then the players are going to assume that that is just honest, uh, like shitty service and incompetence. What they won't see coming is that he is secretly the villain. Honest, shitty service and incompetence. I, I kind of wish, like in a perfect world where we could actually get some clear communication, I feel like that'd be the motto of like Best Buy or something. <laughs> it's shitty and it's incompetent, but at least it's honest. But at least it's honest, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of our podcast, ah. Uh... Not me. No, uh, I got it. Uh, okay, so this was session 23, episode 24. It's the 21st of July, 2020. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, Tom Lando, you can do so on Twitter. I'm Narnog, N-A-R underscore N-O-G. Alternatively, if you want to get in touch with either me or McGill, or the podcast in general on Facebook... Check out our Facebook page, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. And as we mentioned, you can check out uh, images like a man covered in what look like shitty temporary tattoos <laughs> while he brandishes a <laughs> tiny knife. Um, but he looks real serious. He's also wielding this knife in like the dumbest looking way. Anyways, that's classic Palladium art for you. Yeah, I was going to say, that's um, like Rift's art encapsulated. Uh, the knife is too small and it's pointed kind of weird. Uh, it's kind of drew a picture of, oh, I got a tattoo of a wolf that looks kind of like a pig. <laughs> it uh, increases my health a little bit. Anyways, uh, we got a WordPress. It's comparecampaign.wordpress.com. Man, yeah, this, man, this idea is like really conceptually funny. <laughs> I'm laughing my ass off over here. I still, um, man, 20, I got 20 tattoos and they're all Pickle Rick smoking a blunt. <laughs> Man. so uh anyways uh follow us on spotify if you're listening on spotify and you haven't already and uh you know maybe uh let us know if you've got any great ideas for a wacky tattoo man uh or if you look like the tattoo man send a photo of yourself or if you inspired by this podcast get 20 tattoos of pickle rick smoking a blunt oh i we should claim no credit for that though Send a photo, yeah. but that's all on you. Yeah. Well, you know, you know who's responsible for that. Not me. Level up your characters. Take care, everybody. <laughs>